Can you hear me now? I can. And, I'm sure you can. And I can hear Mr. Hendricks as well. <laughs> and like you said, Paul, if Gene can't make it, we just dump him. No no loss. That like was, you said. That was never an like issue. Like you said. Like you said. Hey, hey. <laughs> I, got, I, I got that reference. Back to the bin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I am Paul Spataro, and I am joined by the Legion of Substitute Binsters. We have with us Mr. Gene Hendricks. Hello, everyone. Da 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 da. Gene! <laughs> And uh, you, you'll you'll uh, recognize the dulcet tones of Professor Alan Middleton. No longer an intern. Yes. Well, if you've been following the uh, the Facebook page, uh, <laughs> Kirk, Kirk has become the unhired intern. Kind of like the way when Kramer was working for the Wall Street firm. He just came to work. He wasn't actually employed by them. <laughs> But he's been uh, he's been doing the yeoman's job of uh, getting uh, scans of things that we discuss and putting them on the page so that people can take a look at them if they don't have the books handy. So it's kind of cool. Very, it is very good. And uh, <laughs> he's just kind of a, a free agent intern. <laughs> so how is life since you're no longer interning? Not too shabby. No complaints here, and as of this, uh, you know, who knows with these uh, back to the bins when this will be released. Uh, I'm guessing, what do you think, Gene, February 2022? By then you may be an artisan. (laughs) (laughs) But Uh, here in the summer of 2018, I've got summers off. I know. It's pretty nice. When you've lived through the hell of being a back to the bins intern, I think once you get past that, you just learn to appreciate all things in life. Exactly. Yes. You know, I was at a recent faculty meeting. I was thinking, you know, at least I'm not warming up Dr. Bill's Diet Mountain Dew. So anything could always be worse. I think the warming (laughs) up the Diet Mountain Dew is not anywhere near as troublesome as cleaning his feet and giving him a pedicure and then putting on the diabetic socks for him. I mean, how how you got by like picking the you know the, the the little clumps of dirt out from underneath his toenails? I I it's beyond me. You're 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 a good man. Anything, anything to be on this show occasionally. You know that, Paul. It's... I don't know if that's better or worse than trying to get Scott into that wasp costume. <laughs> <laughs> oh. No, no. So just you know, even before we mention our books, we should just just just. Between the three of us, which do we think Scott is going to be, you know, oh, you covered that without me? Oh, the three we have, it would have, to be, Ge- it would have to be jeans. That's yeah. what I was thinking, too. <laughs> I'm going to hear about it, I know. I, I would say there's a very good chance you will. Because <laughs> it, it, it just, just from the cover alone, it right. looks like a book Scott would say, oh, man. <laughs> but we will see. 
He might nice be one saying by it. The way. <laughs> so, Gene and uh, just Gene and Scott, Bill and Scott, are uh, both working tonight, uh, and their work schedules have been pretty pretty difficult lately. So that's why I put out the call, and Gene and Alan were both foolish. I mean, nice enough to. Uh, <laughs> Get awake enough. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the main thing. We yeah, were, actually, we I, I probably up. sent I probably sent it out at about six in the morning. So the first two first two that said they were available, we went with that. And uh, you know, fact that you guys are up early, <laughs> it worked in it worked in my favor. I don't know if it worked in yours. I was at work already. Oh. Wow. Anyway, so uh, we have kind of a theme going today. Of sorts, and uh, we kind of have a bat theme going. Uh, what was it? You you picked the book. Who did you pick the book first, Alan? Me or Gene? Do you remember? Yeah, uh, you did because okay. I, I I said, oh, I was thinking about doing this anyway. Mm, let's okay. let's go with the theme. <laughs> so so Gene, Gene, excuse me, Alan picked a book, uh, and we'll get into it in a moment. But the villain in the book is called the Bat. And then Gene picked a book uh, which features Batman for the DC book. So then, since we had a theme going, I picked a Marvel, and I picked one that had a Bat antagonist in it. And so that's our theme for today. We got the Bats going. We got Bats in our bin free. <laughs> and there's the title of the episode. <laughs> so I mean, with, don't take this the wrong way, Paul, but that sounds like something Dr. Bill would say. It's, well, well I've, do I've take been... that the wrong way. Actually, you should take that the wrong way. <laughs> I've probably been hanging out with Bill too long. Mm. So, But uh, anyway, uh, why don't we get to the first book? All right. Well, uh, I am bringing to the table Captain Marvel, number three, but not that Captain Marvel. Not, or, the, or not, not the other Captain Marvel either. Not any of those other Captain Marvels either. Not even, not See, even uh, what is it, uh, Ms. Marvel, who's now Captain Marvel, not even her. <laughs> So I was hoping you guys would bring, you know, Shazam and something else. We could have had, uh, you know, this, this. I, I was going to say this book for the Shazam that. score yeah. episode. That would have been another theme. You could have gone, you could have yeah. done this book, and then Gene could have done a Shazam book, and I could have done a Captain Marvel book. <laughs> well, this is actually from something called Myron Fass Productions, and it is cover dated September 1966. It says that it's a giant action issue. It is. And most importantly, it's at the magic cover price of 25 cents. Now, was it purchased for your collection with 25 cents, or did you have to did you have to open the wallet a little more? It was donated to me by our uh, uh, generous Canadian friend and, and uh, uh, f- former guest on our crossover comic book business episode, uh, the great Rob Lance sent oh. it to me recently. Very nice of Rob. Basically, I think his, his strategy is when he's clearing out the quarter bins of his store for things that don't sell, mm-hmm. I think that's how they end up at, at me, which is okay. I'm not complaining. Yeah. Or if they're otherwise about to fall apart. Yeah. <laughs> so we have on the cover by Carl Burgos and Carl Hubble. We see a blonde dude, mostly in red, shooting his right fist off of his arm to a, you know, 
SmackDown, a caped gray and blue dude. Our guy in red is our version of Captain Marvel. And he is shouting his catch, catchphrase, split! And he is fighting the bat. Now, uh, this issue has five stories in it, and we're going to talk only about the first one, the one that is referenced here on the cover, unless everyone has a couple hours to kill. <laughs> Anybody? Any? Okay. Well, it means you can bring them back for future episodes. Bam. This is now my go-to bins book. I like it. <laughs> hey, hey. You know, if, if, if the hero can have Sleepwalker Corner. You know, Sleepwalker Corner is one thing, but why Bill has developed uh, Amethyst Isle, it's, it's, <laughs> it's beyond me. Yeah, he's got to be careful about that. The, the authorities could take an interest. <laughs> well, well, luckily, he's, he's, he's saving... Corner. He's saving those now for episodes when I'm not there, so we're we're good. We're good. So I'm, I'm gonna before you give your synopsis, I'm gonna give a quick uh, quick background on Captain Marvel because I looked him up on Wikipedia. Now I remember Captain Marvel somewhat from when I was first collecting comics. I definitely had an issue or two of this. I no longer do. But I always kind of got a kick out of the character. There are only about five. So. It, well, it says it lasted four issues, and then it was followed by Captain Marvel Presents the Terrible Five, and it says numbered one and five. I don't know what two, <laughs> three, and four were. Okay. <laughs> but Captain Marvel was a jet-booted and laser-eyed alien android powered by a blue M medallion who had been sent to Earth by his creators to escape the atomic destruction of their war-ravaged planet. Vowing to protect the peace of his new home, the self-proclaimed human robot took the secret identity of journalist-turned-Dartmoor University professor Roger Winkle. So you did this kind of like escapism. You feel like this is you. <laughs> he fought crime world, using... The world his... needs more superhero professors, I'm just that saying. That is true. He fought crime using his superhuman strength, speed, and durability, as well as he could detach his head, limbs, and hands and send them flying in all directions when he shouted, Split! And Split! reattach them when he shouted, Zam! The MF uh, Enterprise's version of Captain Marvel made a cameo appearance along with other alternate versions of Captain Marvel in issue number 27 of DC Comics' The Power of Shazam. The, ca the character is shown performing his trademark division trick while wearing the traditional Thunderbolt costume of Fawcett Comics, Captain Marvel. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, but then we, we, we may have to cover that one somewhere down the line. <laughs> well, this one is Captain Marvel versus the Bat, written and inked by Carl Hubble, based on the character created by Carl Bugos. Burgos, and Comic Book DB credits Leon Francho as the penciler. And in addition to mentioning, as we did, this is not the Captain Marvel that you know we necessarily may be most familiar with. I do have to say to old-time baseball fans that this is also not the Carl Hubble who won 253 games for the New York Giants over a 16-year career and was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1947. Nor is it so it's not that Captain telescope. Marvel. <laughs> it's <laughs> not that Captain Marvel. It's not that Carl Hubble. So there are some famous names involved in this comic, but you know, 
not necessarily the famous people that go with those names. So after a splash page, that's pretty reminiscent of the cover. We start the actual story on a sideshow stage in Riverview, where the world, where the would-be world conqueror, the Bat, is performing his hypnosis-based stage show, as is fitting a would-be world conqueror, I guess. <laughs> and as the next act begins. The bat heads across town to where, are you ready? Billy Baxton lives. (laughs) (laughs) Billy is the ward of Professor Winkle, and the bat knows that Billy knows Captain Marvel personally, and he can use that as uh, as a wedge. And as soon as Billy walks his dog, the bat hypnotizes him, to obey his every command and did I mention that the bat has like hypno goggles of some kind you gotta love those <laughs> <laughs> that looks like they should be in sale and you know in an ad for like two dollars yeah he probably bought them from the ad in the prior issue of Captain Marvel um, so as uh, but as the, the, the plan of this would be world conqueror which did start with a boy walking his dog, has moved on to the next critical steps, using that boy to steal the captain's power amulet and bring it to the bat, and then watch the bat on TV tomorrow for future instructions. Again, just a reminder, this is a plan for world conquest. Billy tries to steal the amulet while the professor, who is in fact Captain Marvel himself, separates himself and works out his various body parts. I love that scene. Then he takes a shower and leaves the amulet outside while he does so because, you know, you don't want it to get steamed up. So Billy steals it and takes off. Professor Winkle notices that it's gone, knowing that Billy took it, but not knowing why. Without the amulet, Captain Marvel's power drains and he lands on the street and comes to to a halt like in, like a stone colossus. Now, I haven't mentioned this up to this point in the story, but as Paul said, Captain Marvel is an android. And you can sort of think of the amulet as his iPhone charger. You know, it's, it's, it, it's that important to him. So with his arch nemesis immobilized, the Bat sends out orders to a secret army over a special communication system. Instantly... An armed horde rises throughout the land. Police are overrun. Even the flow of traffic is cut off. Riverview is now hopelessly under bat control. And in conclusion, the bat says over the TV, Residents of Riverview, follow orders and a golden rain will follow. Disobey and injustice will be meted out swiftly. And I think this speaks to that famous old saying, so goes Riverview, so goes the world, I think. I think. Pretty much. So, because I I don't know if I've mentioned this, but this is a plan for world conquest. I'm pretty sure Tim Russett used to say, whichever way Riverview goes, the country goes. (laughs) (laughs) So in this uh, this important swing district, uh, Billy manages 
to run past the guards surrounding Captain Marvel and brushes the amulet against him. And then it is on. Body parts are flying all directions and laser eyes are fully engaged. I don't know if we mentioned this before, but he has laser eyes too. So, yeah. Two of the captain's dismembered arms, I guess we'd say, grab Billy and lead him to protection because the bat is about to order the destruction of all national monuments. And yes, that did escalate quite quickly. (laughs) Although, I mean, unless those national monuments include like army bases or the Pentagon, uh, Navy fleet and subs and nuclear bases across the country, I'm still not seeing this as a first step towards global conquest, at least not yet. Marvel recalls his body parts to him, heads for Styx TV Studios, and easily defeats the three guards by separating his two hands and and his head, because a good headbutt comes in pretty handy. To the solar plexus. (laughs) Boom. And just before the countdown, actually it's a count up, but before the count up can reach three and all the national monuments exploded, which seems like a plan a bit over the head of this two-bit stage performer. Captain Marvel does save the day, and he leaves the bat for the law to take care of, with our hero's archenemy promising, someday we'll meet again, Captain Marvel. Then I'll have my day. The end. Bravo. (laughs) Now... let, let me let me get this straight. The bat has super hypnotic powers. His own private army. He can fly. Can, he can fly. He can take over people using this hypnosis through the television. And he's a circus performer. In his supervillain costume. Sounds about right. Okay, now, just I want to make I don't sure think, I got that right. I don't think you've missed any major <laughs> points here. <yet. laughs> uh, and, and and yet, with that many powers, the guy who can separate himself into five parts and hit him with two two feet, two arms, a head. I guess the laser eyes. I, I guess the laser eyes maybe equalize it, but not yeah, for nothing. Maybe. But it's six parts because That's, of his torso. He had his torso. I guess we can't forget his torso. Which just floats there. That doesn't actually do anything. <laughs> I'm sure you could send that flying at people. It's what yeah. I mean. You know, I, like I said, I have a certain nostalgic feeling for this because it's a character I probably haven't thought of in 30 years. And and when Alan suggested this and scanned the book for us and sent it over, I, I got the warm fuzzies reading, reading this just because of the, uh, the, you know, because of that nostalgia. That said. I mean, it's awful. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a, the, the whole concept is just ridiculous. There's nothing to actually propel these body parts. Uh, you know, it, it's how is it splitting up? How are they moving? What's going on? It's just all, you know what? We're going to come up with a silly concept and just run with it, please. That's, that's the now, whole idea behind this. Now, I do believe that the comic may, in fact, have been a ploy to test the legal status of the name Captain Marvel. And you know, I could envision a business plan where these comics are produced with the hope of being sued and then negotiating a settlement. 
I mean, well, I, I have no evidence to back up that hypothesis, but I completely think that's possible. Well, it seems this started April of 1966. When did Marvel introduce their Captain Marvel? Let me see if I can get that, because that might give us a little Captain and, Marvel. You know, the Here further he is. Point, uh, he, was, he came out in December of 67. So Marvel Comics oh, wow. had no basis to stop this from happening. My guess, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, just with armed with my new knowledge that I just got, uh, I'm gonna vary off your hypothesis and think, M, what is it, MF Productions or whatever the company is that produced the first book, they did that. Their book was a failure because, well, look at it. Uh, <laughs> and then, and then somebody at Marvel or maybe in Marvel's legal department, said, you know what? It's up there for grabs. You want it? Yeah. Go get it. And that's when they created the Captain Marvel that they're using, just to stick it to the They saw it as an opening. Yeah, could be. Could be. And 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 who knows where the Fawcett versus DC you know, status was here in 1966. I think it was, it was still bogged down in the courts. I don't think yeah. Fawcett had gone bankrupt by then. Mm-hmm. I, well, I don't, I don't think it was bogged down in the courts, though, yeah. because I think the courts had ruled they couldn't use it. Yeah. And I just think I think they were in pretty much just in limbo as far as using that character until they eventually, like you said, went bankrupt. Then DC just purchased the rights to that Captain Marvel, but but Marvel Comics was like, eh, not so quick. We got the rights <laughs> to that name now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, the fact that. On the inside of the story, the bat's costume is dark, dark blue and black. And on the cover, it's a light gray and blue. Again, to me, that's a, you know, if we can't, and he's called the bat. It's like, you know, if we can't stick it to, you know, DC Comics once, we'll stick it to him twice. Yeah, oh, I definitely think, mm-hmm. I definitely think there was a conscious effort to, uh, to, to come as close to Batman as they could without, Mm-hmm. Infringing on copyrights. Uh, yeah, he's, he's he's even got his little psychedelic belt with the uh, <laughs> green diamonds going across it. It lo- it looks a lot like the Thomas Wayne Batman. Oh costume. yes, there, yes, that's it good, does. Great point. Yeah, but just with the hypno glasses. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was the '60s. So. I get a huge kick out of uh, Captain Marvel working out by lifting 500 pounds w- pound weights with his. Uh, disassociated hand and wrist. Yeah, I'm not quite sure that works for building arm muscles. I mean, there's, again, there's... He's, he's, also, he's also lifting them with his foot on, <laughs> with a leg that's been taken, you know, uh, disconnected from his body. Yeah, but his limbs already have anti-gravity powers. That's how they're floating, so... Is he actually lifting it, or is he just canceling the gravity? He's anti-gravitying them, as far as I could tell. Yeah. Or is he just trying to impress Billy for some uh, nefarious reason? I'm just uh. saying. <laughs> I just want to know how he keeps the necklace on when his head comes off. Because <laughs> the neck goes with the head. Yeah, so it should yeah, just, it should just slide down his torso at that point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at the splash page, his head is popping off, and the necklace is just kind of sitting there, even though he's horizontal. Uh, Anti gravity powers? Uh, yeah, must be. Now the the artwork in this, to me, 
feels more 1940s than 1960s. Mm-hmm. This almost looks like a Golden Age comic to me. Yeah, especially with some of the poses that they have. It it, it looks like it's... I, I would even put it like late 40s, early 50s. Maybe. Yeah, I could see that. You know, but yeah, I, I see what you mean. It, it's a little more detailed than Golden Age, but not by much. It 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 almost has the not not the uh, pacing or or breakdown of it, but just from an artwork point of view, it almost reminds me of like a Sunday Funnies type level. Yeah, I was of actually artwork. gonna 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 mention mm-hmm. that that that's how some of the art looked to me, like a like a newspaper strip. Yeah, like the old Batman comic strips. And I've never reviewed yeah. those. I have a, I have a book downstairs of the old Superman strips, but I don't have Batman ones. So I I've read a few of them. I don't have a uh, I don't have a book of them anywhere. I think the only the I think I've read a few of them in the greatest Batman stories ever told. If okay, I remember, yeah, that, I could see them using yeah. them as filler in there. Yeah, uh, but I, re- I remember one. One instance, and it was it was just Sundays, and there was Batman and Robin. I don't know why this sticks out in my mind, but Batman and Robin had to go uh, down into a mine or some someplace very far underground, and Batman was telling, "Oh yeah, well, equalize the pressure in your head, blow your nose." And if that image is just stuck in my head, I have no idea why. I know it was from a Sunday Batman comic. All right. <laughs> Can't remember you, phone numbers, but I can remember that. <laughs> I've been doing uh, uh, as as of the time of this recording. I've been doing a series over on the quarter bin with uh, Dial H for Hero stories from the Adventure Comics, you know, the, the the reader submissions of ideas. Right. And if I saw Captain Marvel's power set in there, the ability to separate his limbs and to have laser eyes, I would think that's not a bad idea coming from an 11-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's no cosmic Viking, but yeah, I, I can see what you mean. <laughs> So now, were either of you familiar with this particular character before, well, you know, before this book came into your hands, Alan, or before... uh... Mm -hmm. I had remember, I remember hearing about it, like, in passing at some point, so when, when, when he split his limbs off, it didn't, you know, it didn't shock me that that was his power set, and... Even uh, when he shouted "Zam," that that sounded familiar, but I don't remember where or when I heard of him. Sam Bam, where is I wonder jam. if he's in the. Um, if either of you read the League of Regrettable Superheroes? No, I haven't. <laughs> no, I wonder if he's in there. It's a it's a basically a book of silly, crazy comic characters from history. Hmm. Mm. I wouldn't and be at so all surprised. I wonder if I wonder if yeah, Captain, this version of Captain Marvel might be in there because it did vaguely ring a bell. I wonder if that's where I'm 
remembering well, this, this the, one to the me firing is, off of his body parts as weapons. This is reminiscent to me of uh, the character that was probably around the same era called Herbie. And he was he was like an overweight kid who kind of acted as a superhero. And I'm trying to remember specifically uh, any details of it, if I can find it in here. List of fictional characters. My God. <laughs> I just want to know who is... Who, who's going to pay for the Styx TV studio equipment that kept Marvel destroyed? <laughs> I don't think he's a wealthy professor. Put put, put it on the bats tab. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Take really. the money he's saving from paying the private army well, to pay for it. Okay. You know, clearly, uh, clearly, you know, this was meant for a very young audience that wasn't going to give such thoughts. No kids. And, yes. and, Herbie, just by the way, is a fictional character who appeared in Forbidden Worlds, number 73, published by American Comics Group. Uh, he is an antithetical hero, short, obese, unstylish, and young, deriving some of his powers from genetics and some from magical lollipops from the unknown. Herbie can talk to animals. <laughs> sorry, 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 Paul. Get, would you mind repeating that last part again? From magical lollipops from the unknown? Yeah, I just... I mean, I thought I, just I heard to make that, sure that there I wasn't knew something you couldn't have said that. <laughs> That's Herbie right, there was super cigars from Krypton. Herbie can talk to animals and sometimes even inanimate objects who all know him by name. Fly at high enough speeds to quickly travel to other galaxies by walking through the sky. Become invisible, cast spells, and summon spirits from other dimensions. Quickly dispatches enemies with apparent ease. And once, once he got his own title... Traveled through time. Herbie is emotionless, terse, irresistible to women, consulted by world leaders, nearly omnipotent, and more powerful than Satan. Now tell so me, he's and, a Mary Sue. And he, 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 he went under the name Fat Fury. <laughs> now, does either, one of these, does either one of these sound familiar to you? No. Not at all. I'm going to go no. So, but did, that's... This is like the same era, and this is what it reminded me of. Mm. And, uh, Makes sense, yeah. His, his Fat Fury costume almost looked like an, an obese Irving Forbush. <laughs> see if I can uh, get, get, a, get a picture of it and share it with you, and I'll throw it on the, uh, on the uh, Back to the Bins webpage also. But this, this one is going to... Yeah, you, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> Orbush man's obese cousin. Okay. <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty much that's what it is. And like I said, this is what it brought back memories of to me, uh, which is, I guess, not necessarily saying good things about it. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, you, you know, both this Cap, both Captain Marvel and the Bat, they remind me of Marvel superheroes role-playing game characters because the what you're supposed to do in that system is randomly roll up your powers and this cap i mean captain marvel has laser eyes flight super strength and he can split his limbs off that sounds like a random role if i ever heard one <laughs> pretty much now i i, I uh 
because of the way Skype has got me now, I, I didn't put it in a chat window. I just put a picture of the Fat Fury on the Back to the Bins Facebook page, so you can see it on there if you're interested. And but let me see if I've got this straight, Paul. This story made you nostalgic for stuff that wasn't all that good. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much exactly what, what, what the point is. This is wow. stuff. This is stuff that I just found. I had found early in my comic collecting days that was so obscure and just off the beaten path that I remember not not just me, my cousin, my friends that we used to you know go to this comic stores together. We were all very intrigued by it because it was just so out there. I'm not saying we ever thought it was good, <laughs> but. You know, actually, uh, Dick Enos just commented on the uh, the Facebook picture. One of the funniest comic book series ever. There you go. Well, someone <laughs> liked it. <laughs> and Gene Hendricks just commented. <laughs> what? Wait a minute. <laughs> so, I can it, multitask. <laughs> but any anybody who's listening to this who's curious to see either Herbie the Fat Fury or the cover of the Captain Marvel issue that we just talked about, uh, I posted both of them on the Facebook page. It'll be several weeks back in the postings by the time you uh, listen to this. <laughs> but they are on there if you're looking for them. Wow. So, did I mean, so neither of you were any, you know, familiar with this uh, until this book came into your uh, waiting hands. So you eliminate wow. the nostalgia factor that I have. <laughs> and then what do you think what what like what's your thoughts going through this i mean is it just that you're just absolutely like reviled by it or is it you no, know, i mean i i i did not read the next the the rest of it i wanted to you know uh focus on this first story but i'm definitely going to read the rest of this in the next couple of days and i think i even have uh from rob one of those whatever it was captain marvel presents the Terrific trio, or whatever that was, the Fabulous hmm. Five, or something. And I imagine I'll you know, be reading that pretty soon too. It, 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 with the right attitude, I think it's dumb fun. Oh, that's that's as, mm. that's as good as you're going to get out of it. <laughs> you're not getting better than oh, yeah. dumb fun, but I think I think you can. That is achievable. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, this, I, putting myself in the mindset. Of back then, and remember, this was September of 1966, the the same year that the Adam West Batman premiered, which was a reflection of the comics of the time. <laughs> so, it's it's not that far afield, really. It's a it's not good, but <laughs> I, I tried to be so diplomatic. <laughs> I, I was amused by it. Let me put it to you that way. I didn't. I didn't hate it. I was just I was reading it like, oh, well, that's uh, every every new thing he's doing is like, oh, well, I didn't see that coming. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, to be to be honest, I don't envision myself sitting down and blasting through all four of these stories, like you know, one after another. I might want to spread them out a little bit. I sense there might be some repetition. <laughs> you know, they might not. They. It might not be uh, 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 binge worthy, but so it's they are like a, a, bins worthy. Oh, <laughs> I see what you did there. Very nice. 
Yeah, I can see this reading like an Archie Digest, where after a little while, I said, okay, I'll put it aside now. <laughs> and that's that's kind of what I think of these books as, almost like the, uh, not not when the Archie comics tried to make serious superhero books, but almost like when you'd be actually be reading an actual Archie comic, and they might have a fantasy story in there where one of the characters <laughs> is envisioning himself as a superhero. Right. Something, you know, along that level of, of sophistication is what I'm where I'm placing this. Uh, and and it, I think, you know, I think you hit it on the head it, in, the, in the right frame of mind. It's good, dumb fun. And, you know, you, you just can't you can't give any real thought to you know reality in this. You can't expect anything where, oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> that's that's just not a sentence you'd use when reading this. No. Yeah, I mean this this statement applies to pretty much every comic book that that we talk about on podcasts I think, but certainly something like this. The idea that 52 years later three <laughs> fairly decently educated sort of smart guys would be talking about it would blow their minds. <laughs> that would make no sense at all. But it does make for an interesting trip down nostalgia lane. <laughs> so, all that said, that's not not a not a bad bit of discussion on an eleven page story. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you want to rate it? Well, uh, in terms of of the cover, I, you know, the colors I think draw some attention. There are odd details, including a teeny tiny Statue of Liberty way off in the distance. <laughs> And Captain Marvel's fist is flying off. And that kind of intrigues me at least a bit. Uh, C plus on the cover, maybe. The inside art is is not good. Hmm. Uh, it told the story. I guess it didn't detract from it. And, and sometimes art can do that. And uh, I don't know what do we disconnected or the disembodied body parts. Those are insane. But I think they look sort of as reasonable as possible. That gimmick could have looked much worse, put it that way. And if it did, the whole story would be harder to take. So C minus. Uh, and the story, you know, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense, uh, including like you know basic things like the building blocks of the story and the bad guy's plan. But the audacity of it. It, it did keep me turning the pages, so I guess maybe a C for a C. It's 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 average. It's okay. Uh, I was able to put myself in the right framework for goofy '60s era fun, but even at that, it's not the greatest version of that. Hmm. Uh, I had fun. I imagine I'll have fun reading the rest of the issue, but none of that changes the fact that it was pretty at best average. That sounds about right. <laughs> For the most part, I think that that's pretty fair. Um, I think the cover... I, I have to... <laughs> I hate when I can't put my thoughts together here, but uh, I have to look at this from the perspective of what type of audience are they trying to attract. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I, I've obviously, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but the most important part about attracting an audience is the big words Captain Marvel and mm -hmm. the words The Bat. <laughs> yes, 
But I don't think they were trying to attract middle-aged men. No. I, I don't think that we are their target audience. And when I look at the cover, it's it's kind of odd. You know, you pointed to the uh, the very little Statue of Liberty, and I, you know, I, I have spent many times in Manhattan. I don't think there's a portion of Manhattan where you'd have that perspective on the Statue of Liberty. Actually, maybe in Jersey somewhere. Not really, because the the way that's that's angled, that's it's the yeah, statue. No, it's, yeah, it's you not... you would have to be out in the Atlantic to see it from that angle. Yeah, this this that's I mean it's uh, interesting, I, right? And I'm not going to complain about it not being photorealistic on that, <laughs> right? But yeah. it's just just an interesting <laughs> thought that they put it there at all. That's that's really what what my point is. And then like the because I mean this is river river view riverside that this takes place in. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no there's no mention of New York City anywhere in the story. No, but it does. I mean, I, I you know just the fact that they have the statue there and. Uh, and and the you know skyscrapers I guess in the uh, in in the uh, foreground that you know makes you think that they're trying to make it into some sort of uh, you know New York substitute uh, the 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 back well the buildings in the foreground are kind of interesting because they're all just colored yellow uh, there's no effort to distinguish between them other than a little bit of shadowing he's even got little people on the rooftop. Which is just interesting, and he's got him on more than one rooftop, which is also interesting. Uh, it, it looks like whoever drew the the cover spent a lot of time with a you know with a ruler and a uh, you know just trying to set up the perspective on these buildings. And it's kind of interesting. The helicopters aren't very well rendered. The people aren't very well rendered. But he's probably trying to get an audience of seven year olds. Would be my guess that that's the target audience. Maybe kids who are just just learning how to read. Seven, eight-year-olds, somewhere around there. Uh, and I think it would be interesting to them. So for that reason, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pretty much go where you went, and I'm going to say C-plus on it. The interior art, as we said, it, it's reminiscent of something from the uh, late 40s or early 50s, more so than the 60s. Uh, and I think you, you actually said it very, very well, Alan, where you said it, it doesn't really do anything, but it also doesn't detract from the story either. Uh, so for that reason, I'm going to say a C on the interior art since it's not detracting from the story. And the story is, uh, I think in the business, what they call batshit crazy. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's just way out there and it's silly. And it, it's, again, I think it's going for the audience, you know, like a seven or eight year old audience. And from that perspective, it's kind of interesting. And, uh, you know, my, my, the area where I'm taken with this book is purely from a nostalgic point of view, just because it's an oddity and it's interesting. Uh, but it's not anything where I'd say, oh, you know, you got to get this or anything like that. Uh, but the story, I guess, again, it's it's playing to the audience that they're shooting for. I think it tells a kind of an interesting story, even though the logic is just crazy. Uh, so I'm going to say a C on the story also, and I'm going to give the book overall a C. So you're saying you're not really a comics fan if you haven't read this. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, the cover, it, uh, it does the job. If you had a, like you said, a single-digit kid going through the store, see this on the rack, it would grab their attention. So it, it does the job. I'm going to knock it off a little bit because the 
figures on the cover don't match the figures inside as far as the costume color, the hair color, <laughs> pretty much, you know, anything except the general shape of them. Uh, so I'm, I'm just going to give the cover a flat C. Uh, they, they did spend time on it. It does grab your seven-year-old's attention, but it's, it's just not quite there. It's, it's average. Uh, interior art, again, does the job. It's, it's got, it's full of stock comic book poses. You look at the bat landing. That's a good way to put it. That's you a know, good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the bat landing looks like Batman coming down. Him flying looks like Superman. Uh, it, it just, it's like someone took a how to draw comics and said, oh, well, this will work for this panel. But it's not horrible. It's, you see what's going on. You, it's, in fact, that's going to be on the cover yeah, dress. Gene yeah. Hendricks. It's not horrible. It's not horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if if I was not reading this, I could follow along. So it it does does the job, but it just just does the job. So again, C. Story. Uh, yeah, <laughs> this thing is all over the place. Uh, it it does. Th- it introduces you to Captain Marvel and all of his powers and where his abilities come from and that he's got a, his youthful ward, Billy, for why he has a youthful ward, Billy, I have no clue. Uh, but so it's it's a little known fact, Gene. Most mm-hmm. of us professors. Ah. No, wait, no, don't have wards. Wait a minute, sorry, don't no. have wards. <laughs> Emily wasn't your ward? <laughs> You don't see too many people with wards nowadays. No. Interesting. Just the court. Yes. Uh, but I mean, just the 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 escalation from sideshow hypnotist to I'm taking over the city with my private army. Wow. So I'm I'm going to give the story a D for dumb. And that, that would make it an overall of a C minus. All right. But, you know, Professor, uh, you should probably add a half a grade overall just because it's got a hero that's a professor. Because most <laughs> most comic book professors are villainous. Yeah, or, or sometimes a, either a little insane or a little sleazy or a little. Yep, yep, they, yep. They're like usually one step shy of mad scientist. I mean, and this guy's not technically, you know, human, but still. Well, most I still I consider him a colleague. <laughs> my experience, I most, some most of professors, my colleagues maybe. Most professors I dealt with aren't totally human. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but enough about my faculty meetings. <laughs> okay, so I guess we'll move on to our more normal book now. Or one of our more normal books. More, more There's normal damning with faint praise for you. <laughs> we'll, we'll go from the 1960s to the 1980s. All right, so for our DC this evening, we have Batman and the Outsiders, issue number 19. Now, this has a cover date of March 1985, but importantly, it was on sale on December 20th, 1984. And thank you to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that information. Our writer slash editor is Mike W. Barr. Our artist is Jim Aparo, and our colorist is George Roberts. On the cover, we have a close-up of a Christmas ornament on a tree. 
On the surface, we have a reflection of Geoforce and Superman, ready to fight. Another ornament has our title, Who's Afraid of the Big Red S? Inside, we find Halo flying through the front door of Wayne Manor and scaring the bejesus out of Alfred. She finds Bruce in the library and explains that she thinks Geoforce is going to kill somebody. We are then treated to a flashback where Halo flies to Geoforce's mountain home. The two embrace and have a heart-to-heart, where they admit that they don't love each other, which is apparently the best news of the year for them. Geoforce then gives his, air quotes up to the microphone, little sister a Halo charm on a necklace. She has to use his phone to call Katana and tell her the news, but then she has to... Uh, leave a message because a depressed Katana doesn't answer said phone. A rather annoyed Bruce reminds Halo that she's just been thinking all this and hasn't spoken a word. They sit down (laughs) and Halo explains that she was visiting Geoforce when he got a phone call from a friend, Denise, who had just taken overdose of sleeping pills. As Geoforce flies there, Halo calls for an ambulance and then flies after him. The ambulance and Halo arrive at the same time and see Geoforce carrying Denise out of the house, which has an obviously broken-down front door. They put her in the ambulance, and the EMT says that she has a chance. Geoforce swears vengeance on Dean Rayburn. Not Gene Rayburn, Dean Rayburn. (laughs) You didn't have a long, skinny microphone? (laughs) No. (laughs) The man who is responsible for this, while crushing a brick in his hand. He angrily flies off, and we're back to the present as Bruce and Halo head down to the Batcave, where Bruce hits a switch on a console. Not labeled, surprisingly enough. This sends out an ultrasonic signal, which reaches the ears of Clark Kent at the Daily Planet Christmas party. After a quick change, Superman takes to the sky, where Halo meets him over Wayne Manor. After a quick explanation, Superman and the smitten Halo fly off to find Geoforce. We then cut to Black Lightning and Katana taking down someone who is trying to rob a street corner Santa, which is probably the lowest thing you could possibly do. As the Santa goes to get to the police, the two outsiders have a talk about why Katana is ducking Halo. She tells him that she thinks Batman is right and that Halo needs to be with her again, air quotes up to the microphone, real family. So she doesn't want to give the young woman a safety net and has cut off all contact. Black Lightning doesn't believe a word of this. Back in the main plot, Geoforce has found Dean Rayburn and has a rather wicked look on his face as he busts through the wall. Rayburn reaches for a pistol, but Geoforce crushes it and then picks up Rayburn by his temples, preparing to crush his skull. Superman Halo interrupt him, which Geoforce misinterprets as an offer to help. The man doesn't know Superman very well, does he? Superman demands that Geoforce put Rayburn down, which ticks off the Outsider, and he punches Superman full force. As this is the pre-crisis Earth-1 Superman, the punch does far more damage to Geoforce's hand than Superman's chest. When Geoforce lunges back at Rayburn, Superman grabs Geoforce's arm and throws him up through the roof. Superman flies after him, 
but Geoforce uses his powers to increase the gravity around his fist, thus robbing Superman of his strength and invulnerability. As Superman is on the receiving end of a Kryptonian gravity uppercut, we switch over to Metamorpho and his girlfriend, Sapphire, doing some Christmas shopping. Metamorpho says that they need only buy one more gift for her father, Simon Stagg, and they're done. This enrages Sapphire since her father tried to kill Metamorpho. But he explains that he never knew his mother, and his father never had a state job, so he was passed around from relative to relative growing up. Therefore, he values parents of any kind and can forgive Simon, since it is Christmas. Back at the fight, Geoforce is ranting about how Superman is trying to protect... How Superman is trying to protect an extortionist who drove someone to attempt suicide from getting his just desserts. Superman, who has had enough of Geoforce, clocks him and explains that not everyone that has done wrong should be killed for it. They need to be reformed and the law must be upheld. Since Geoforce is having none of it, Superman pulls a tactic out of the Hulk's playbook and does a super clap, which results in avalanche. This doesn't affect Superman, but it knocks out Geoforce. Superman flies him back to Rayburn's place, where Rayburn threatens to sue Superman over the destruction he and Geoforce caused. When Superman confronts Rayburn about Geoforce's accusation, Rayburn is quick to deny everything. It's at this point that Batman enters with signed affidavits from six other female students that Cosby, I mean Rayburn, <laughs> had made inappropriate advances on. Stinking professor. <laughs> You know what? Just know what I was just saying. The professors are the villains. I'm going back and giving that last story a B plus. (laughs) Batman uses this opportunity to chastise Geoforce, who is looking suitably shamed. Superman, happy for the workout, says that Geoforce just needs some experience and he'll be all right. Batman is a little pessimistic about Geoforce's future, however. We switch to Denise's hospital room, where a battered Geoforce is visiting her. Denise explains that she thought she wanted to die to escape everything that was happening, but her will to live was too strong, so she called him. She's sorry that she didn't get Geoforce anything for Christmas, but he says that she gave herself many more Christmases to come. We end with Geoforce holding Denise's hand and seeing a love-struck halo flying behind Superman outside the window. We then switch to an epilogue, where a... Miss Derringer is calling a number that she doesn't know who it is. She explains that Violet Harper killed her brother Mark, and she wants her to pay. Well, the person on the other end has a grudge against Violet Harper as well. It just so happens that this is Tobias Whale, and behind him is the all-new, all-deadly Cyanide. To be continued. And how do you spell cyanide? Uh, S-Y-O-N-I-D-E. I love it. It's the 90s, <laughs> like five years early. <laughs> hey, they're ahead of the curve. That's all it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this was an interesting issue. This was actually one, I don't know if any listeners remember this, but 
I went to uh, several months back. I went to uh, Storm Watch Comics, which is in the general area down here. And what they do is they have a deal with their back issue bins that you get a bag, you know, your standard free comic book day kind of size bag. And you can put as many comics in there that, that you can fit for $25. And this was one of the ones I got there. So this one actually cost me 42 cents, which means I only (laughs) got it for a 43% discount off a cover price. I'll approve. (laughs) (laughs) You get get the Uh, Professor Allen dispensation. (laughs) I love the fact, I love it when Batman says, you know, we can't see your flashbacks. (laughs) That's pretty good. It's very meta. I, uh, that's like the first thing that jumped out at me is, is, is if Geoforce is like ready to kill somebody, let's not take time telling the story about how, how you decided you're not in love with each other. And then he found out that there's a problem. You know, you know what? Geoforce is going to kill this guy. After you stop him, I'll explain to you why it's all happening. (laughs) Yeah. Go, go hit the Superman call switch. Then I'll tell you the story. Yeah, that's that's a uh, well. I mean, it's linear storytelling essentially. You, I mean, yeah, a lot of it is flashback, but it's Halo comes in, sees Bruce Wayne, flashback. Uh, yeah, so, Halo, you're so not telling me anything. Wouldn't it have been better? <laughs> it's also the nature of an ensemble book, I think. Wouldn't it have been yeah, better? Sort of if they need to run through your roll Well, and this way, this way, you wouldn't have her telling her silly, "I'm not in love" story. While mm. somebody's in danger of dying, but you have yeah. to end the but you have to end the fight at the end of the issue. I mean, you can't you can't have the climax of the fight be on page thirteen and then fill in the rest of the stuff. Well, no, because there is no um, the climax would still be in the same place because the flashback ends halfway through. So then you're in regular time. It was just be reorganizing. The only reason I can see that they did it flipping through here again is the splash page is the only splash page. It is the only full page panel in the comic. So I'm guessing that when they were setting this up, they wanted that Halo giving Alfred a heart attack moment right at the beginning to grab your attention. Yeah. As a, as opposed to her just singing jingle bells while slowly flying to a mountain cabin. So, smashing through the door, giving Alfred a heart attack with very, very long arms. <laughs> mm. I, I do like the fact that he calls her Miss Halo. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> that, Bruce Wayne's first thing is, <laughs> shut up. Why didn't you come in through the Batcave? I have a secret identity here, you know. Fair point. <laughs> Not that anyone's actually going to see him, you know, see her come in, because, I mean, Wayne Manor has no neighbors, really. It's not like Tim Drake's parents are going to move in next door or anything. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, this, this was a fun read, I thought. Just the whole Superman fight is really, you know, what made the book. So that mm-hmm. they did well to build up to it instead of just having it be the whole issue. Um, 
but it was a very quick read, first of all. It was, yes. Which, you know, I'm, I'm never a big fan of that. When it, when it, when they go by too, too quickly, it's, it bothers me a little bit. Um, I thought Superman was very well characterized in it. The way, whole way he handles the fight. Just just overall, I, I thought it was a, a you know really decent issue, decent story, except for the fact that it was so short. The artwork is, it strikes me as inconsistent. Now, this is the getting older Jim Aparo. Mm-hmm. It's not not Jim Aparo at the top of his uh, of his game. Uh, some of it is up to his normal level, and some of it not quite so much. And I do I did find that towards the end of his career, he did become a little bit less detail-oriented, a little bit less uh, rigorous at kind of keeping anatomy quite as good as he did in other, you know, earlier in his career. Uh, I, I found his artwork you know, somewhat less appealing later on, and this kind of fits that. It's, it, was, it was a little looser, if you ask me. Uh, yeah, and this, this also suffers from something that Apero would, at least I noticed later in his career, is John Byrne face syndrome, where all all the men, except, you know, for their hair and everything, they could have the exact same face. I mean, if you, if you look at Rayburn and Geoforce and Superman and Batman, they all have the same chin structure, they all have you know, the, the same general shape to their face. The only difference is the hair, and Rayburn wears glasses. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna put that solely at the feet of John Byrne, though. There were a lot of artists. Oh no, especially I, back it, earlier when you know when you, uh, what's his name Hawkeye and Steve Rogers would be indistinguishable from each other, and Hank Pym and, also. Right. I, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying that as a knock on John Byrne. It's just that's the when you say same faces, that's the the artist most people mm-hmm. in our circles would go to, even though it's not always true. The the John Byrne thing about this to me is the drawing women with overly large eyes all the time. That's a John Byrne thing. Mm. To to make Especially- them, to make them somehow look more feminine by making their eyes too big. Mm-hmm. And on the very last page, uh, or the second to last page, rather, the very middle panel, I think that creates a very strange-looking face. Yeah, yeah, it, like her her eyes are too high up on her head. Yeah, they're, they're kind of dominating the face a little bit, and yeah. like you hardly see any nose at all. Mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, it's, it's nitpicking a little bit, but, you know, that's what we're here for. This is what yeah. we do. <laughs> It doesn't mean we don't like the subject matter. <laughs> it just means we're critiquing it. Yeah, exactly. Positives and negatives. Yeah. I, I, you know, I mentioned that I like the whole Superman aspect of it. I, I, I you know, there was a little bit of a, a I know it's, it's a bad word nowadays, but there's a little bit of social warrior in it that they're, mm-hmm. you know, attacking the fact that this professor is sexually abusing these uh this is a this is a me too moment yeah three exactly. plus decades ago exactly so i mean there's definitely positives about it uh i you know i, I do think uh, without ever getting graphic about 
you know, what he was doing to them. You know, the only graphic thing is that she tried to kill herself. Mm -hmm. uh, but the only, gra you know, without getting graphic about it, I think the message is clear. This is a book, let's go back to who this is intended for. This is a book that's probably intended for mid to late teens. And that's not a bad lesson to give them. About you know, it's kind of the whole no means no thing, you know. It's 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 good for them to know. Yeah, and also the the other lesson being what Superman and Batman are saying is okay. Yes, this guy's scum. Yes, this is something wrong that he did. But there are proper ways to handle it. You don't just go flying off the handle and go to crush someone's skull because. That's not the way to do it. Batman went the proper way and said, oh, look, there are more people. The courts will see you next Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah, then this guy's just, you know, he's, he's ruined his own life with his behavior. Mm -hmm. and, that's, and that's a good thing. Yes. Uh, just to get but I think, but I, I, I think addressing that, I mean, talking about, you know, basically presenting an, an, an alternate view. Uh, you know, a, a a a different view of what justice is uh, was was a nice approach. Mm -hmm. And I think also presenting it from Superman's perspective is a positive thing too. To, mm -hmm. You know, to to be able to show that Superman, you know, that he does things the right way. <laughs> I think that's important. I think that's you know that that's the core of the characters that you know he he's. He's got the power. He could he could just go over and crush this guy's head, you know, without a, a second thought. But he he do, uses his powers to do things the right way instead. Uh, just what, as and, I, and, and I was, was going to say, in, in in terms of the fight itself, I thought that they did a pretty good job making Geo Force at least for a little while, you know, in a similar class mm -hmm. to Superman at least. So that that was a legitimate throwdown for a while. And it, it made sense with his powers, because he's able to control gravity, and at this point, it was Earth's lighter gravity that gave Superman part of his powers. So it, it worked out really well. Yeah, I, I thought it was, a, it was a good, it was a well put together fight from a story perspective. I'm looking at it a little bit more closely now as far as the uh, the choreography choreography in the artwork and it, it was it was well presented by uh, Aparo too what I what I think he may have lost as far as details uh, I don't think he lost in storytelling mm -hmm. I agree uh, the panel layouts are very well done yeah I think I think he he would have benefited from you know from a, a good strong anchor mm -hmm. and he I guess he didn't have an anchor at all in this no, in he, fact, he, he, he his own. Uh, if if you go by the credits, he did everything except the colors. He even did his own lettering. Oh wow! Hmm. Now, I, I found it interesting that you know, and it, it's I think it's an interesting character to have to play with, and it's one I'm not really that familiar with. But you know, when they attacked or when they took care of the uh, the muggers that were going to attack Santa. And then Katana, the, the guy's reaching for his gun, and Katana stops him with her blade. And, you know, I just think, like, you know, to to have a character whose powers are based on using a uh, razor-sharp sword, to have her stop people without actually, like, slicing their arms off is probably sometimes a challenge. 
<laughs> but if you mm-hmm. see, if you look at it the way it's drawn, is she threw the the sword into the snow, and used the flat of the blade to hold his arm in place so that he couldn't grab the gun. Now, why he couldn't reach across with his left arm and grab the katana blade out of the snow is beyond me. But we, we won't go there. Because there's this guy that will electrocute him if he does. <laughs> there you go. Okay. We'll go with that. Teamwork. Yeah. I mean, he, the only reason he was reaching for the gun is, oh, they're talking. They're not looking at me. I can get this. Oh, no, I can't. All right. I'll just lay here. <laughs> And that that's an interesting couple pages too because it's obviously it's it's nighttime and the coloring on it is really nice because you get the idea of oh yeah the Santa he's got the the fire and the oil drum and that's really the only light around here and the the reds and the yellows and everything that's that's really well done I think yeah it does it does convey nighttime without having the artwork be so dark that you can't see what's going on right and and having the snowfall uh, on on these panels you know you can get away with not having a background because you have the snow in the foreground you do get that dimensionality mm-hmm. and it's not totally bereft of backgrounds there are Mm-mm, you know right. depending on which shot you're looking at uh it, it definitely creates an atmosphere and, and, you know, it's, you can feel, you know, unless, I guess unless you're one of these people who grew up in a part of the country where it never snows and just doesn't know what it's like on a snowy evening like that. <laughs> but, but if you do, you, you can definitely feel that, that, that midwinter snowy nighttime feel. It's definitely mm-hmm. there. But, uh, you know, like I said, my, my biggest complaint about it is just that I, I blew through it a little too quickly. But other than that, I enjoyed this. I thought it was a, a good story. Enjoyed might be a, a bad choice of words for a book about someone you know who's a sexual predator. But other than that, it was it was still an, it was it was uh, maybe a better way to say it is an interesting and somewhat entertaining read. Yes, that's that's a good way to put it. I would say. And I and and just to you know to defend. Jim Aparo against some of my earlier criticism. There's there's some shots here, some pages that are that are strong. I think that the page where uh, where Superman first confronts Geoforce, that entire page is very well done. Oh yeah, yeah. Just the look on Superman's face as he walks in with his hands on his hips is uh, yeah. You don't want to mess with this guy right now. Or even the look on Geoforce's face when yeah. he realizes that Superman is not there to help him in any way mm-hmm. and then the stupid punch <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you would think that you know someone who has worked with batman would have heard stories of you know this guy can move planets around well i'm gonna i'm gonna <laughs> say that I, I don't think batman is one batman's the one guy who's not going to really share information with you the fact that you work with Batman is, you know, he's, he's not going to be the one who, oh, Batman told me everything about you. No, Batman doesn't say anything. In fact, <laughs> every time I turn around, he just goes away and doesn't say anything. It's kind of annoying <laughs> like that. Yeah. Just ask Commissioner Gordon. So, I, I you know, I, I, I'll give him uh, the benefit of the doubt that Batman hasn't warned him about the extent of Superman's powers. 
<laughs> Yoda liked that. <laughs> well, are we ready for some grading? Sure. All right. Well, on the cover, uh, I I really like this cover. It it grabs your attention. It is perfectly suited for the time when it was on the stands. Like I said, it came out December 20th. And it it works well with what's going... It tells you what's going to happen in the book. Superman and Geoforce flying towards each other, ready to fight. There you go. Sold. <laughs> at, at Christmas. <laughs> and that's that's the primary reason I grabbed it. I mean, I was, I was looking for some Batman the Outsiders books anyway, just because it, that's something I've read like two or three total in in my comic collecting career. So I was, maybe I should check this out. And I, I actually came across, I think, four or five of them in those back issue bins, this being one of them. And I saw that cover. I was like, oh, yep, I'm getting that one. <laughs> I expected a story to be a little bit more Christmassy based on the cover. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. I, I did not have a problem with it not being schmaltzy and Christmassy. Yeah, there there were indications that it's happening at Christmas, and that's yeah, about there's it. A, there, there's a Santa Claus. There's a Christmas party. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you know, the, as far as the cover goes, I'm I'm going to say the cover is an A minus. It's not. It's not without some problems. I mean, it, it's. It's a little on the sparse side as far as detail goes, but I like it. So, you know, A minus a- on that. The interior art, let me preface this by saying that Jim Aparo is my personal favorite Batman artist. Uh, he's one of the first Batman stories that I, I got as a kid. Beyond, like, the greatest Batman stories ever told and stuff. One, one of the ones that I got when I was starting to collect all this stuff was Death in the Family. And that is just mm, a par yeah. wall-to-wall. So that more or less set my preference for how Batman is drawn. And like we were saying, you know, the, the detail is is a little lacking here, but... The expressions on the faces, the panel layouts, uh, it's its not your standard grid at anywhere. In fact, there's, there are some instances where you have the panels overlapping each other, which is which is nice. It conveys the, this is happening really quick, or, you know, really frenetic pace. You have the, the after images of, like, when Superman Geoforce are plowing into the, the mountainside, so you know just how fast they're going. The chore- like like Paul said, the choreography of the fights are really really good. So I'm also going to give the the interior art an A minus. You know, it's it's not the best work Aparo did, but it is it is very good. As far as the story goes, this has the feel of the kind of comic book stories that I like. It's a one and done. You know everything you need to know by picking up this issue. However, it also has all subplots accounted for, copyright Michael Bailey, because you get the Geoforce Halo romance comes to its conclusion here. 
which from what I've read in other issues, it was kind of a a building thing over a little while. You have the thing with Denise coming to a head. You have the Halo and Katana issue going on. That is not resolved. That carries forward. You have the setup for the next issue with the Tobias Whale and the uh, <laughs> lovely spelled cyanide. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, it read quick, though. So that that, that is an issue. Um, so I'll, I'll give that a, let's say, a B-plus for the writing. Uh, and this is also going to be one of the, the comics I'm taking down to Baltimore this year because Mike W. Barr is going to be at Baltimore oh, Comic Con. Nice. <laughs> so I would say overall this averages out to an A-minus book. Yeah, I, I, I'm on a pretty similar wavelength, so uh, so uh, uh, let me go. Uh, you know, we've all seen Christmas-themed covers, and we've seen ornament-themed <laughs> Christmas covers. But I thought the design elements of this, the cover, you know, the action scene inside the big ornament, the title of the story inside the smaller ornament, that worked pretty well for me. I, I, I think the cover's an A-. Uh, the inside art, you know, we've said what we need to say about it. But, again, Aparo is a pro. Uh, layouts, fight choreography, still pretty strong. So to me, that's a B. Uh, in terms of the story... I actually thought the use of the Christmas and winter setting was good, uh, and everyone on the team seemed to get their moment. Uh, you know, Gene mentioned that. You know, that's you, you got an ensemble. That's what you have to do with it with an with an ensemble book. And I actually thought Geoforce had some legitimate arguments uh, versus Superman. That. Um, in, in terms of their different approaches, I wouldn't uh, wouldn't put myself totally in hashtag Team Geoforce, but uh, you know I thought you know, you know Superman's approach here comes pretty close to might makes right, and 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 uh, you know I'm stronger and bigger. I'm actually going to set the rules here, but Geoforce's point is you know there are actual real world short term dangerous consequences to. Sometimes letting letting the courts and the system uh, it, it moves slowly. Sometimes um, the number of victims that this guy had racked up uh, along the line. I think that's there's an interesting question there. They actually spent a couple pages on it. Uh, there's some melodrama there. Uh, that's really the only thing that that gnawed at me a little bit. I, I like this a lot. It's a, to me the story's an, an A minus and and it's probably a B plus overall. I think it's a a good comic story, and I think it's a it's a it's a good enough Christmas story too. Okay, I don't think I fall too far off where you guys are. Um, I like the cover. Uh, I think you guys, you know, you described it pretty well. Uh, I don't mind that it's a little sparse. I think the image in the Christmas ball kind of conveys what we what we're looking for in the story. And it would it would make me uh, be interested in, in picking it up, especially to see Superman so prominently in a book that isn't his, facing off against the other hero. It, it would definitely intrigue me, uh, and I think this is one that I would want to pick up. 
I don't think I'm quite in the A minus level on it, but I think I think I'm just a, a notch below that at B plus. Uh, I definitely like it. The interior art, as I said, it's not Jim Aparo's best, uh, but the layouts I think are really strong. I think the choreography is really good. Uh, the image of Superman flying up in the the initial shot of him in costume I think is 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 impressive. Uh, there's definitely some some real solid stuff in there. I just kind of wish that Aparo had somebody else ink him in this issue because I think, and not even necessarily okay. somebody who's going to impose their style on it, but somebody who's just going to try and add slightly more detail here and there. I think that's all we really needed on it, and it would have been it would have knocked it up a grade. Uh, I am a Jim Aparo fan. I don't know that Jim Aparo drew the best Batman, but Jim Aparo is my Batman artist. If I had to rate it, I think Neil Adams probably drew the best Batman. But again, Jim Aparo is my Batman artist. Uh, so, you know, he, he was drawing him through a very large portion of the time that I was collecting Batman. So he's, he's always going to be the guy who I'm going to. Uh, go with as far as that goes. He's he's kind of my Batman artist and my Aquaman artist. Um, I'm going to say the interior art, it's not Jim Aparo's best, but it's certainly above average. So I'm going to say just a solid D on it. Uh, and the story, my biggest criticism of the story is just that it goes by so quickly. I will take issue with what you said, Alan, because I think... Uh, I, I don't think Geoforce legitimately had a good debatable argument i think geoforce's argument is made out of or, or based upon emotion right. i think superman's argument isn't might makes right because i think superman is saying if might makes right it's okay for you to crush the professor's head mm-hmm. and, and I'm, I'm telling you no we have to take the moral high ground so uh he he stops geoforce with might makes right but that's only because Geoforce is, at that point, out of control. Uh, I remember back in high school when they talked about like the death penalty and things like that. And the teacher who was talking about it talked, you know, his philosophy was the death penalty is always wrong. Killing somebody, you know, two wrongs don't make a right, effectively. Killing is wrong and killing somebody doesn't make it right either. And somebody posed the uh, question of, you know, what if... What if you got home and and you you know your wife and your child were murdered by somebody? What would your position be then? He says, and his response was, "That would probably make me insane, and I'd want them dead." <laughs> but <laughs> but here with my sanity right now, I'm telling you that's the wrong answer. And that always stayed with me, however many years it is since I graduated high school, which is you know quite a while ago. But I always thought that's, that was an interesting perspective on it, to understand himself well enough to know that he would want that, but also to understand, that's his, not the right thing. understand his own morality well enough to know that it's not the right thing. I always found that to be a, a philosophically interesting thought. And it's something, again, like I said, it stayed with me all these years. Um, so I think that's kind of what we're seeing here a little bit, that Geoforce is so incensed by what's going on and by the fact that this innocent girl almost died because of it that he's ready to kill this guy but he's not he's almost not in his right mind i mean he he probably Mm -hmm. could sit down and debate it and give points why this guy should die but he's not sitting and rationally thinking about what he's doing 
And I think ultimately when, you know, when they do get uh, the affidavits and the the professor is looking at getting his comeuppance. I think Geoforce ends up being very happy with that outcome. And, you know, it's almost like there there is another way. And, and I, I like the fact the way the story presents it. I think it's a, you know, it, it, it is a philosophical issue that gets you thinking. And, mm-hmm. you know, when, we, when, mm-hmm. when you can talk about it and debate it, I think that's really good writing. So mm-hmm. even though I have criticism of the story being a little too quick to read, I'm still going to give the writing an A because I, I, I just like when stories make you think uh, and, and that there aren't easy answers. I think Superman was right here. I think that's an easy answer. But how did he get to the point where he was able to do the right thing? And what if they didn't have the alternative of Batman getting those affidavits? Isn't his solution still the right thing to not kill somebody? So it, it just gets you thinking, and you know there is I don't know that there is a, a, an answer to that question that we're going to reach tonight. So I'm just posing it out there uh, rhetorically. <laughs> uh, but but I, I really like that. So overall, I'm going to give this book a, a, a very solid B plus. That this was a good story that that got you thinking, and uh, you know just an enjoyable read overall. Uh, oh, and one of my favorite moments in it is uh, you know. The, we, we don't get thought bubbles anymore, but when uh, they sit down and he goes, the Geoforce goes to hand uh, <laughs> Halo a, a, a box, she's got a thought balloon over her head <laughs> and she's seeing an engagement ring in, in her thought balloon. And I just found that to be very amusing. <laughs> and the, the relief on both their faces when they realize, <laughs> oh, wait, we don't love each other? That's wonderful. Yeah. I actually thought that was pretty good. Yeah, thought that was sort of a, a, a there, there, there's a maturity uh, to that relationship or to, to ending that relationship that way. Mm-hmm. And they're still friends. That's that's the main thing about it. It's they realize that this can't go anywhere. But oh well, you know we love each other like brother and sister. Well, did did you ever if you watched the show Seinfeld, which I would imagine most people I know do. Uh, there was a, a storyline where Jerry got engaged to Janine Garofalo, and oh. and it was because she was like a female him. <laughs> they liked all the same things. But then in the next episode, they had a quick flashback to how the engagement broke off, that they were too much like each other, and they decided that they, they didn't like each other, and they simultaneously said to each other, I hate you. <laughs> 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 that's that's what this reminds me of, even though it happened whatever fifteen years after this book. So. Well, we know Jerry Seinfeld likes Superman, so he probably read this book. Quite possibly, actually, you know what? I didn't even that thought didn't occur to me until you just said it, and yeah. very possibly that moment on Seinfeld could have been inspired by this <laughs> this book. There you go. There you go. Which which just adds a whole nother layer of enjoyment to me. Hmm. So we might as well go on to our third bat book. And my book is cover dated October of 1995. It's Untold Tales of Spider-Man, number two. Uh, on the Marvel Wikipedia page, it says volume one. I don't know if there is more than one volume of it. Uh, the co- uh, I don't know. <laughs> cover is by Pat Oleaf. Uh, it shows Spider-Man in the foreground and a very, very quickly descending... Bat creature, uh, reminiscent of the Batman bat from Batman, uh, mm-hmm. coming down on him, uh, and it's got the words, it stalks by night. Uh, 
at the bottom. Uh, the story is written by Kurt Busiek and penciled by Pat Oleaf, Olaf, inked by Al Vey and Pam Eklund, colored by Steve Matson, lettered by Richard Starkings, and edited by Tom Brevoort. Now, I have a pre-canned synopsis on the Marvel Wikipedia page, and I did not write one, but I'm going to just do one off the cuff anyway. The story is titled Castles in the Air, and it opens up on a rooftop uh, of a apparently very ritzy area where a, a uh, politician, I think he's a, it's uh, not a congressman, but a, some sort of politician, whatever he is. Um, I think he's, a, he's supposed to be a city councilman, isn't I, he? I think that's exactly it. You're right. That sounds city right. City councilman. A guy named Randolph Shera is romancing uh, this, this lovely young lady. Uh, until the bat creature comes down on them uh, on their rooftop and he's he's very quickly in fact he says no please I'm a city councilman I'm wealthy I can pay you take the girl not me not me <laughs> so he's, he's obviously I, a stand up guy I'm a guy. politician I'm important yes exactly <laughs> uh, and then uh, the, the bat creature leaves as quickly as it as it came and you see some kind of food in the air as it disrupted the table uh, cut from there to Spider-Man who is rushing to make it to uh, his class on time and when he gets there he's reading the Daily Bugle where it's got uh, comments about the uh, the bat creature uh, which is the, the, I'm sorry the, the creature is called Batwing I, I lost that for a moment uh, and there's an award, a reward being offered for his capture, and Peter's reading that and thinking, well, you know, he could take care of himself and his aunt if he does that. Uh, as, as he's reading it, one of the kids tries to trip him, and he sidesteps him without even trying, uh, but Flash jumps out in front of him and knocks him to the ground, and there's uh, one of the bullies, some guy, uh, you know, he's a huge football player nicknamed Tiny, uh, who takes Peter's notes and won't give them back. And then Peter has to walk off humiliated that he's been bullied by these people. So he goes off to look for the Batwing, but does not find him. Goes back and uh, hangs out with his, what appears to be 90-year-old Aunt May in these pictures. Uh, which I, I, always, I just always found it a little bothersome that they drew her so old. Because if Peter's 15, his aunt should probably be about 50, not 90. So, they mm. said great aunt or something? No, no. Yeah. No, she, no. She's regular aunt, not a great aunt. Yeah. yeah. Although she is great. But, <laughs> it's an awesome aunt. Uh, <clears throat> so he, he goes to the Daily Bugle and he's trying to put the moves on Betty and Jay Jonah yells at him and tells him to do that on his own time and tells him to go get pictures of Batwing. Meanwhile, uh, the city councilman is uh, mobilizing uh, his security forces on the roof so that they could take care of the bat if he comes back. Spider-Man approaches and comes up with a plan to help them because he's trying to capture them and get the, capture them and get the reward. In the meanwhile, Peter goes over to Tiny's house and climbs the side of the house to go up to Tiny's room and then uses his web shooter to pull his notes back. But while he's there, he sees Tiny being basically abused by his father, who's calling him stupid and just hollering at him. And uh, 
clearly he, he gets physical with him, but although the, the picture doesn't show that. And then, uh, you know, Peter starts thinking, you know, maybe Tiny's uh, a bully and he's getting what he deserves, but at the same time, he's making a sad face that he knows that that's not right. So we cut back to the uh, councilman's rooftop where they have a whole big spread out on the roof to uh, entice the Batwing. Spider-Man's hanging out on the side to uh, wait for the trap to be sprung. And while that's going on, Batwing comes and he starts dropping down. And in the meanwhile, Spider-Man gives him chase, gives chase, goes after him, eventually brings him down, but then realizes that he's a poor, pathetic young boy who's been transformed into this bat creature. And uh, as as he mutated, he was exposed to something that caused him to get that. But then, as he mutated, his his parents thought he was some sort of demon and ran him off. So. As that's going on, you know, as he comes to realize it, Spider-Man says, "Geez, I didn't dream. It's going to be okay, kid. I won't hurt you. We'll get you. We'll get you somewhere safe, somewhere they can help you." And uh, Batwing says, "No, I can't. You know, they're not. They're, they're going to experiment on me if you uh, bring me in." So he he bursts out. He's ready to be subdued by, or he is subdued by the security people. And Peter actually, or Spider-Man rather, webs up the security people to allow him to escape, which gets him on the be the negative side of the city councilman, who is mouthy, web webs shut, and he goes off knowing he did the right thing. And then the following day, he goes over to Tiny's house. Tiny answers the door with a black eye that his father apparently gave to him, and he volunteers to tutor him and. It, the story ends with him tutoring Tiny to help him through his problems. And that's the end of this story, which I hadn't read before. I pulled this one out because we were doing the bet theme. But I really enjoyed reading this one. I thought this was, you know, it, it, it tugged at your heartstrings more than once. Uh, it, it captured an era of Spider-Man that went by too quickly. You know, they, mm -hmm. they had him graduate high school and move on to college too early in his uh, in his comic, in hindsight. You know, I, I think when they were writing it, who knew how long it was going to last? But if you knew you're going to get, you know, 700 issues, 800 issues, 900 issues, you don't have to have him graduate high school in the 30s. Yeah, and that's, that's because they were trying to do everything real time back then. Uh, all, all the books were doing that. It's like, well, it's been a month since the Fantastic Four fought Namor because that was the last issue, so it had to be a month. You know, it. So I, I can understand why it happened. But I agree. You know, if they knew how long they were going to have, then yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure that that Lee and Ditko would have stretched out high school more. Yeah. And I, yeah, I wish high school had listed right at least a hundred issues. I agree. And and it's it's it really is the core of what the character was based on, and they didn't totally get away with that. I mean, having him graduate high school didn't eliminate that, but it it, it took away an element of the story that wasn't explored as much as it could be because right. they moved yeah. along so quickly. Right. So I, I like the fact that they had this series that brings us back to that day, is telling us new stories without 
disrupting the current continuity. Uh, I, I think Kurt Busiek's a, a really good writer. Uh, and I think he, he had a, a very good grasp on the character. Uh, you know, he, he had the negative things happen, but he didn't have to have the obligatory, oh, the Parker Luck panel, right. which I just get so tired of seeing these guys just do that over and over again. <laughs> and, and you know, it, it showed, I don't know, it, like it gave you a perspective on the bullying and, you know, where he couldn't respond to it. But, you know, it, it's almost it's almost a scene from Superman, the movie where it's, you know, I can make a touchdown every time, you know, yeah. that, that that thing. You know, I, I don't know why you were put brought here, but it wasn't to score touchdowns, Peter. It wasn't to beat up Flash. <laughs> Although he did at one point. Well, you know, but, you, <laughs> but you, I do like this early Pete who's a little bit mercenary with his powers, you know, mm-hmm. he, he can earn some money with this and and that's OK. But again, never at the expense of his no moral exactly exactly. He, mm-hmm. he wasn't going to sell out when he realized what that wing was. He he yeah. he could not, in good conscience, sell him out. You know, and that's now right. I I did miss one thing. He said that we had you know the theme of all our books. Was there a professor in this? Did I miss that? <laughs> I mean, that's that's the one thing pulling these all together, right? And and that's probably the negative of having him in high school. Cause <laughs> had he been in See? college, we might have See? had an evil Perfect. professor. No, but I'm I've always been a fan of Man Bat, so it was great to see him here in this DC Marvel. Crossover. Oh, he absolutely was reminiscent yeah. of Batman Bat until <laughs> until you realized he was a kid. Yeah, yeah, that was a nice touch. Yeah. Now, I of think, course, I think of course, they keep calling him Batwing, but that makes it a DC Marvel crossover again, so I think the character. Yeah, but that wasn't until New Fifty Two. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't think that was the last of this character. I think they did uh, do something. I don't remember. I don't know when, and I'm not sure exactly what they did. But I do think they did something to kind of resolve his storyline into, or either, or to bring him into the current time. I'm not sure, but I do think the the I almost called him Man Bat. I think the Batwing character <laughs> did appear again. Uh, later yeah. on, I, I do have a sort of a technical question about what one aspect of this. How do we feel about the lettering doing like a different, unique font for the narration boxes? I thought I that was kind of weird. I didn't I have that a was problem weird. with it, but I don't. To me, it didn't really add anything to it either. Yeah, it's it, it yeah. but it. it it stood out, but I don't know. It's, know, it's almost more of an old English type there. lettering in yeah, the boxes. Very strange. And I, I, like I said, it didn't really even stand out to me at the time. And now that you point it out, I'm thinking, oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, it's actually, to some extent, it's a more fine lettering. And as I get older and my eyesight gets weaker and weaker, <laughs> I don't really appreciate more fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like bold and dark. <laughs> thick big <laughs> the the shot where uh when when he realizes that he's a, a kid it's it's almost like a haunting image of his face there yeah well it, it, because he's in the uh mm-hmm. the, the spider signal as well so that, that gives it a because he's got the 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 kid's line as the lines on his face it just looks right it, it makes him look both more monstrous and more pitiful at the same time, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is... He's nice monstrous trick. and yet helpless. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I gotta say, it, this is 
the the one issue I have with the art now I know it's it's in the '90s, so it's got that general style to it. So I I don't have a huge issue with that, but it's the eyes on the costume. Too big. Uh, too big. The I can I can see him moving towards that. I don't like it. I don't like those those eyes. I prefer Romita eyes yeah, on the costume I myself. because because the Romita eyes are more. Uh, they're more logical <laughs> to have them that <laughs> right. big makes no sense. Yeah, I don't mind them being expressive either, but yeah. the but the oversized aspect does. Yeah, doesn't. Does Especially doesn't at this point, if he was in high school and they've got the the web wings under the arms, if he's in high school, he should have the the Ditko style costume, including the mask. No, it doesn't match with the current stuff that's on the stands. Of course, that costume's about to change anyway because Ben Riley's taken over. <laughs> and he will be the one true Spider-Man from then on. Forever and ever. Yes, but if you're going to put Peter in the glasses and the button-up shirt and everything, make the mask match, too. It, that, al- it almost looks like he's trying to meld a 1990s style with Ditko. Yeah. yeah, and it's, it, it's that's a tall order. Yeah, and, and it, it seems to me like it's hit and miss. There's certain panels which look good to me, and there's certain ones that don't look quite as good. I, yeah. I don't mind the big eyes from a from a, just from a, like a looking at it. Sometimes the picture can be pleasing, uh, but just the same, it doesn't make sense. And that's the thing. And like it, because it doesn't make sense, it takes you out of the story a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's that's the problem I have with it. It's not so much that I look at it and it bothers me that it looks bad. I don't think it looks bad. It just doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah, because you're. I don't care what kind of spider powers you are. You're not going to see anything out your mask from below your cheekbones. So there's no point in having the eyes go that far down. Yeah, I mean the eyes are down to the point where the bottom of them is lining up with where his mouth would be. Right, and the top of them are up almost to his hairline. Yeah, pretty much. So but yeah, that's, that's, I, that's him adopting a McFarlane look. Yeah, and that's that's my issue with it is this isn't McFarlane era Spider Man. This story is taking place in Ditko era Spider Man. Mm-hmm. So you know, try and do that. He does great with Peter. Does great with Aunt May. Jonah Jameson, Betty Brant, you know, and everybody else, it's just the spider costume. It, it, I saw that, and I'm like, oh, okay, it's Untold Tales of Spider-Man. Okay, oh, so he's got that, so he must be in, you know, at least in grad school. Then he's, oh, wait, he's in high school? What the heck? <laughs> it just threw me at the very beginning of the story. Didn't make sense. Now, now from a, an art point of view... Uh, the character of Batwing, the way he's drawn throughout this book, and nowhere nowhere else in the book does it look like this to me, but just Batwing looks to me almost like it's drawn by Bill Sienkiewicz. Oh. I can see that, yeah. But like I said, no, no, none of the other artwork is reminiscent mm-hmm. of Sienkiewicz to me, except when he's on the panel. I mean, he is, he's suitably creepy. Yes. Dark, and, yeah. and 
tugs at your heartstrings just the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, especially then, especially the last panel where he's flying off to find a new place to hide. I mean, the the kid looks like he's about to burst into tears in that mm-hmm. that panel. Mm-hmm. And you know, so and that that is the man bat formula. Like it's, it's it's another it's just that that classic misunderstood monster. Mm-hmm. I mean that there. There's a reason that trope gets used so many times because it it has worked for literally centuries and so shows no sign of slowing down. Yeah, and uh, and I, I also like the whole subplot with Tiny. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it may have gotten resolved a little too easy, but I was I'm fine with that. It, it didn't, you know, and and I like at the end of it where in the uh, the narration things after he's starting to help him. Uh, the narration says, maybe he can't help here, Peter thinks. Maybe even if Tiny gets back on the football team, it won't fix things. But all you can do is try, right? Just keep trying and see what life throws at you next. And and I think, that, you know, that's more true to Peter Parker than, oh, the old Parker look. Right. Just and in this era, there was no the old Parker luck. He went from, oh, I just sold these... Uh, pictures to to JJJ. Uh, look at the, all this cash I've got. To the next one being, you know, back back on the skids a little bit. But in the Lee Ditko era, there was no old Parker luck. He, it was a roller coaster. You you had ups, he had downs. Right. That's true. Well, since 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 you mentioned some of the things in that uh, in those uh, narration boxes. There was another weird thing, not just the font, but occasionally those would be first person, but not always. It was a weird switching back and forth. Yeah, that is. Because sometimes it's Peter Parker stifles a yawn. He was up too late the night before. And then sometimes it's me and I in, in there. There's a strange jumping back and forth there. Yeah, and... Yeah, I gotta agree with you that 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 inconsistency doesn't isn't needed. You can you that can yeah. be corrected with some. Editing, I wouldn't have to back editing. down for anyone. I'm gonna capture Batwing. So you're bouncing back and forth between a third person and a first person. And I'm not an English professor, but I am a professor. So <laughs> it 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 would be solved real easily by making the first person ones thought balloons, but mm-hmm. they were getting away from that at this point. <laughs> yeah, I. I I still lament the loss of thought balloons. I think I think if used judiciously, they are uh, a very, very good storytelling tool. And uh, for some reason, they've been totally uh, dismissed. And I think, especially as we saw in in the last issue, in that uh, in, in that scene with the 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 in essence the breakup scene. Mm. You know, thought balloons came in very handy there because mm-hmm. you could see the disconnect between what they're saying and what they're thinking, and that's that's one, that's actually one of the things comics can, can do is show a disconnect between action and narration or thought and speech, and but without uh, without a speech bubble, you, you you lose a little bit of that tool. Yeah, that's true. I agree. All right, so I guess it's time to give a rating on this one. Uh, the cover, I think, is effective, but I'm just—it's almost inconsistent within the cover itself because 
Batwing has that Bill Sienkiewicz look that I mentioned, but Spider-Man doesn't. And it, it's almost a little jarring to me that, that you have two almost two different drawing styles on the same cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, it's kind of effective in that it's, you know, you see the threat, it's interesting, and, you, you, you know, you almost don't know why Spider-Man's looking away. Clearly his spider sense is tingling, but he's not, you know, he's almost almost being uh, impacted by the, the Batwing and yet not, you know, not moving to defend himself just yet. So I find it to be interesting. Like I said, a little jarring. I'd say a B minus on the cover. The mm. interior art. Uh, There's points where it doesn't seem to know where it's going, where it wants to go. Uh, like I said, it almost feels like he's trying to meld Steve Ditko with the 1990s, uh, and maybe even a little Bill Sienkiewicz in there. So it feels a little inconsistent because of that. Uh, I think some of the storytelling is... I, I Actually, I think the storytelling is pretty decent. I, I think you can follow it pretty well. And I think the uh, the, the, the action sequences probably are the, the ones that are a little harder to follow. I don't think they're, they're clearly, you know... I don't think you could see what the choreography of it is often. It's just things bursting. Uh, so I'm going to say the interior art, I'm going to give a C plus, a little better than average, but not anything, uh, that I think is spectacular. Uh, the story I think is very strong. I think, uh, I think Busiek did a really good job of telling an, you know, an untold tale, which in and of itself, I think is, is a little bit of a burden because they can just be mm-hmm. kind of just uninteresting or unnecessary, but I think this one's kind of interesting and uh, sets up, you know, tugs at your heartstrings and everything. I'm going to say an A on the story, and overall I'm going to give the book a solid B. That's, that sounds very reasonable. Uh, it's kind of kind of where I'm at, too. I mean, if the cover, like you said, it's it's... Like it's drawn by two different artists, and mm-hmm. it it also it's got one of my pet peeves of stuff in front of the title. <laughs> I know why they do it and everything, but I you can put the title over the web line; it'll look fine. But it's uh, Spider Man looks fine. He and even in the interior art, this is the high school Spider Man, so he's not the Ramita built out, I've been web-swinging for years, Spider-Man. This is someone who has just gotten his powers, he's still getting used to him. he's still wiry. And I like that look, you know, minus the eyes. Bat- Batwing uh, is purposely less detailed, in shadow, you don't know what's going on yet, uh, so it, it's just, it's it's odd, and the lighting doesn't really work. With the moon behind Batwing, yeah, Batwing's in shadow, but Spider-Man's perfectly well lit. So, yeah, it's it's a little off. I'm I'm gonna give, but it gets your attention. So I'm gonna give the cover a B minus. I'll say. Uh, interior art. I already mentioned the costume issues. I do like what he does with Spider-Man jumping around in the after images. Uh, the layout's really good. Some of the some of the stuff though, like with high the high school group, 
when you see Flash, Tiny, Liz, and everybody, it's like they're standing for a picture. Mm-hmm. No, mm, no one who has okay. just been talking is standing like that, all in a line. Everyone, you know, facing the camera, right, facing the camera, shoulder to shoulder. If they just turned around to see him, no, <laughs> it 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 doesn't work that way. That being said, you have stuff later. Jameson is spot on. That yes. look is is great, and you get the stuff like with the uh, the Spider Man ma- uh, mask. You know the side view go, and the next panel down is Peter in the exact same look outside Tiny's house. And you know the the crowd scenes are all right. They're nothing. Nothing too special, but yeah, I, I agree with what what you said, Paul, about the the action being very hard to follow between the way the panels are hooked, uh, put together, the almost two photo reference buildings in the background, and and everything. It's it's just a little muddled, really. So interior art, I'm gonna say C plus on that. But yes, the story is great. It's obvious that this is a continued story because, oh, well, this is picking up from what what's already been going on, apparently. Uh, the stuff with Peter and Aunt May is handled really well. All the characters are just how they were in high school in those first 30 issues. And you know, it, it, he went back and he read his material and knew where he was coming from, and this slots in perfectly. You do, you can put this anywhere in that high school era, and it'll it'll work fine. So yeah, I'll I'll give I'll give the story an A. So that would bring it all. I would say average out to a solid B on this one. Yeah, for me. In terms of the cover, I mean, Gene said a lot of it. Uh, you do have the not only the web covering up uh, some of the letter, of course. Batwing's wing covers up a little bit of the end there in Spider-Man Two. I just noticed, and I don't like it either. <laughs> uh, but I, I mean, actually, on the cover, it, it is kind of weird because nothing jumps out at me as negative, but I don't dig it very much. It, maybe it's the pastel sort of color scheme in the background. It's sort of a purpley pink and a light green and a light blue down at the bottom. And I don't know if the sort of primary colors of Spider-Man and, and the dark of Batwing. I don't know if there's a clash there. I'm not quite sure what I'm sensing. But um, so whatever that is, the highlight of the cover is easy. And that is up the, towards the top left-hand side. Where it says ninety nine cents, because <laughs> this is in the dollar fifty, dollar seventy five time frame, dollar ninety five even uh, time time frame. So that alone keeps it firmly in the B range for me. <laughs> um, but in terms of the cover itself, again, I can't point out what it is that doesn't work for me. But it's 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 it, it, it it's okay. Uh, inside the art, Spider Man. For me, I think Gene touched on this a, a little bit. Is all about flexibility, and him being in strange positions, strange posture, 
And there's some panels in here where that is really good. Um, uh, there's even one I think you may, may have may have uh, been referring to this. Also, there's one where where when uh, you get Peter outside, you know, jumping down outside of of Tiny's, where even though it's Peter, he's in quite a Spider-Man pose, mm. uh, the way that he lands. And there are a couple moments of Spidey, good Spidey uh, 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 positioning, you know, body positioning. And, and you know, that's I think one of the main elements of, of reading a Spider-Man story, seeing some of those moments. Uh, it's not my favorite style of art necessarily, and you're getting a little bit into the 90s, some of the things you guys have talked about. But it is mostly consistent. And I, I guess my negative feelings about the, the lettering in, in those uh, in those text boxes I'll put here in, in art too. Uh, it's sort of I guess B-ish uh, for me. Again, nothing I'm going to really point out other than the sky being way too purple during that that fight at the end. But it's 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 not bad. Um, in terms of the story, I know it's not exactly apples and oranges in terms of comparison, but when I'm thinking about going back and revisiting these early stories or filling in the blanks or, or retelling these stories, I prefer Ultimate Spider-Man to Untold Tales. Um, but that being said, Busiak, obviously a legitimate top-level comic book pro. Uh, so the story itself is very well done. You know the stuff with Tiny, all of those other uh, subplots, um, the twist of this being, you know, a, a, an, an innocent kid uh, in in terms of of the monster. All that is good. The necessary banter is there. I mean, the story has heart. So I think story's a B plus, and for me, story's the most important thing. So I'll, I'll give the whole thing a B plus. Uh, good book. All right, I think we, you know. We had very. We're coming at it from different different reasons, yeah. different directions, <laughs> but sort of landing at about the same spot. But we, we had we had three very very different books, but three that were in each in their own way very enjoyable to uh, to dissect. So I want to take a minute and thank you guys for coming on and and doing this with me, which I always enjoy. Uh, always glad to. Why don't we take a minute and just tell everybody where they can find you? Well, for me, most of my work uh, can be found at the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, which is run by me and my only child, my baby, my M. Your ward. And over there, <laughs> my, my ward. <laughs> uh, one uh, one uh, feedback I referred to, like, uh, liking uh, the, the P- Professor Allen and crew. <laughs> M, M is now crew also. So, um, well, you know what? I'm, I consider myself part of the crew because I'm on every anniversary show. There you go. Hey, we, mm. we've got one coming up. We need to talk about. Um, so, uh, you can find over there my solo shows, the Quarter Bin Podcast, the Comics Reading Journal, as well as the show that M and I do together, Short Box Showcase. And we've been doing a side project for now about three years now, called Darkness to Light has its own separate feed and over there we talk about the, the specifically religious or spiritual content that appears in various bits of pop culture all right well the uh 
The best place you can find me would be every Thursday at thehammerstrikes.com. That is my geeky blog that I do once a week. Uh, it's basically whatever pops into my head, anything from comparing uh, the characters in the prequel Star Wars movies to the Knights of the Round Table to just ranting on cell phones in dance recitals. <laughs> whatever I feel I have to get out. That shows up on Thursdays. Nice uh, to have that outlet, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is very nice. Uh, as far as podcasting goes, mo all my shows at the moment are on hiatus just because life. But if you are looking for back episodes of those, you can go to twotruefreaks.com, the same place that you find this show, and look up the Hammer Podcast, which is the audio version of the blog, essentially. It's just whatever pops into my head to talk about, usually with a guest, because that always makes it more interesting. Uh, my good buddy Adam Worth and I have a show called The Quantum Cast, where we go over the Kevin Bacon of the Marvel Universe. That would be the Wendell Vaughn version of Quasar. And you can hear about why we call him that in those episodes, basically because of all the crossovers he's been in. And... Finally, the someone familiar to this show, uh, Dr. Bill Robinson, uh, he and I do anime freaks, and that we have already gone through the entire first season of the original Star Blazers cartoon, uh, including a guest spot from a certain other person on this call. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't me, was it? No, it wasn't. Okay, just checking. <laughs> uh, and currently... Well, <laughs> when Bill gets time available to edit them, uh, we are going through both Attack on Titan, which is a currently hot anime show, and Record of Lotus War, which is something from back in the 90s. And that's an episode-by-episode -episode coverage, and you can listen to that. If, if any of those show names ring a bell with you, give it a listen. You may enjoy it. If it's somebody who's not a big anime fan, I have enjoyed that show just the same. Because mm -hmm. so, half of what we do is make fun of the stuff. <laughs> and, and anybody anybody who questions why uh, Gene isn't actively putting out podcasts right now, you have no idea how much time and effort this show takes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, then I, I, I think, you know, any, any, any of the fellow podcasters say, oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. But what can I tell you? It's it's. What, what does Mike Bailey call it? A uh, tri crippling, uh, crippling addiction that you may, may never recover from. <laughs> yeah, some, something along those lines. That sounds about right. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that'll do it for tonight's show. Thanks again, guys. Uh, like I said, it's always always a good time. I always enjoy getting a chance to talk to you guys, and I'm glad we were able to do it tonight. Yeah. Thank you for having us on, Paul. Yes, appreciate it. Thank you, everybody who listened. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks 
is a registered trademark of Dimanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Nah, that sucks.